In the year 1967, a group of privileged pale teenagers go on spring break to Santa Catalina Island with only their swimming suits and no alcohol. Unknown to them at the time, their fun-filled vacation would become entangled with a group of art thieves. A couple of those crooks are the parents of one of the swinging teens. To complicate matters, hanging around is a young lady nicknamed Creepy Girl. It's a film of dancing, swimsuit-clad adolescents with very little plot that would almost be unwatchable if it wasn't for Joel, Crow, and Tom Servo. Join Nancy and myself as we talk about the 1967 film Catalina Caper. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas Multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Listen. Well, hello there. My name is Jeff Kelly, and welcome to Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. Today is the fourth Monday of the month, and that means we're going to talk about a film that has been riffed on in Mystery Science Theater 3000 or one of its related shows. On this episode, we're talking about the film Catalina Caper, and for this, we're going to do something a little different. The first half of the show, Nancy's going to tell you about the film, and then I'll be back with the second half as I talk about the Mystery Science Theater 3000 version. So here goes Nancy to tell us about the film itself. They're cutting capers, wild capers, dangerous underwater capers, daring underworld capers. I don't have time to fool around. Where's the scroll? I got it. Then the Catalina scuba divers take on underwater outlaws. Catalina Caper in color. Hello, everybody. After last week's episode on The Dust Walker, I might have to rename this segment Film Grouch. Now, I love Mystery Science Theater 3000 and its subsequent spin offs like Rift Tracks. Some might scoff at this enthusiasm, and to those people, I give a hearty piffle. Go about your sad lives. I choose joy. Mystery Science Theater is to films sort of like Peter Shickley's musical spoofs are to classical music. Listen to his color sports commentary on Beethoven's Fifth Symphony sometime, if you don't believe me. It's pure gold. I'll give Jeff a link to put in the show notes. That said, for this episode, it's Jeff's job to talk about Mystery Science Theater and my turn to talk about the non-rift version of the film. So let's take a long, hard look at the phenomenon that is Catalina Caper. The beach party genre was nothing new when this film was made in 1967. The first of American International Films' canonical beach party picks was released in 1963. Totally aimed at the teen scene, these films starred Annette Funicello, Frankie Avalon, and an almost totally consistent cast of supporting characters. These films were basically just showcases for pop songs and fashionable beachwear, with a silly plot, some slapstick comedy, and a bit of tame romance. 
With all the skin and innuendo, I'm sure the film's ruffled some feathers, but it's all really chased by today's standards. In addition to a large cast of dancing and surfing, or in this case, scuba diving, young people, these movies all have staple elements like a deadpan gang of motorcyclists led by the feckless Eric Von Zipper, music performed by the surf rock group Dell and the Deltones, solos by Donna Lauren, the dim but charming honk Bonehead, and some square older person in the guise of a big businessman or a shady entrepreneur for a big bad antagonist. There's also usually some guest star for box office cred, someone like Mickey Rooney, Paul Lind, or Dorothy Malone. And in my favorite one, Beach Blanket Bingo, we get a very young Linda Evans as a budding pop singer. Many other production companies made similar films throughout the 60s, but none were ever as successful as those AIP films. There were some indie attempts to mash the genre with other genres, like the 1964 Screamfest Horror of Party Beach. It's one of those so-bad-it's-good films, and we should probably cover the MST version sometime. The last installation of these Frankie and Annette beach picks was How to Stuff a Wild Bikini in 1965, but the genre was losing its luster at this point. Catalina Caper is generally considered to be the last of the 60s beach party films, and its thin plot, adequate cinematography, and sparse comedy couldn't do much to maintain interest. There are a lot of moments in this movie where it really feels like they're just checking boxes. Kind of a, well, the Frankie and Annette films had a romantic misunderstanding, an impromptu dance-off, a girl losing her bikini top off-camera, and a wacky subplot with a comic relief character, so let's jam that in, with no setup for any of it. They just plonk those moments down unceremoniously, and the viewer just has to shrug it off and think, well, that just happened, I guess. If you're a fan of old Disney films, you'll remember Tommy Kirk as a kid actor in a bunch of stuff in the 50s, like Old Yeller, The Absent-Minded Professor, and as a young teen in Swiss Family Robinson. He was having a hard time transitioning to non-kid roles, and his personal life was suffering. After a couple of scandals, Disney was forced to let him go in 1965 after completion of his last film with the mouse, Monkey's Uncle. He did a few things after that, including Catalina Caper, but he never really kept the momentum he'd had with Disney. Who knows what he might have done? Would he have been another Kurt Russell, who also started as a kid actor with Disney, but has basically never stopped working? Even had the script been better, Tommy Kirk is no Frankie. And none of the female leads in Catalina Caper are anywhere near Annette Funicello's wattage. So we're left with Tommy Kirk and a slate of I-know-that-face type casting if you grew up watching TV in the 50s through 70s. Instead of a really solid big bad guy, we have the bumbling wannabe crook parents of one of the teens, with the dad, played by Del Moore, as a kind of bargain basement Jack Benny, complete with yachter's cap. Moore did a lot of character work back in the day, newscaster on Batman and other day player roles on shows like Get Smart, My Three Sons, and Dragnet. Instead of Buster Keaton, we have a mystery guy spying on the crooks, doing non-stop pratfalls, always punctuated with the inexplicable line, 
I don't believe it. There's no setup for that line, so it doesn't really warrant a laugh. This character, billed as Fingers O'Toole, is played by Robert Donner. He probably worked on every TV show ever made in the 60s through 80s. He did a lot of westerns and cop shows, and he's in at least one other mystery science theater feature, a bit part as the weird coroner in Agent for Harm, a spy, uh, thriller. Lyle Wagner, a handsome fellow who would go on to play Colonel Steve Trevor in the 70s TV show Wonder Woman, is underused as a one-note tough and bully boyfriend to the creepy girl. Hey, let's dig little Richard really turn it on. The musical numbers are totally shoehorned in with no real motivation for them. I mean... Does it make sense for a band to set up on the Catalina Ferry to perform just one number? Maybe I'm overthinking things a bit, but the things that happen in a scene, even a musical, should be motivated by something. Somebody is sad because her boyfriend just dumped her, so now she sings about the pain of love, you know, something like that. Speaking of motivation, the very first scene starts with a dark beach, then bonfires erupt, then a gaggle of bouncing teens launch in from left and right to land on predetermined marks and start dancing frenetically. There's no explanation, no introduction of characters, then we immediately cut to doughy guys stealing a scroll from a museum. Next, we're treated to an embarkation scene, where our protagonist, Don Pringle from Arizona, played by Tommy Kirk, is being transported to Catalina Island by his tall, blonde, tanned friend, Charlie Moss. Charlie is virile, cheerful, and obsessed with girls. That's basically all he talks about, and it's only cute for a couple of lines before it starts to get old. On the boat, Don approaches a solitary girl leaning on the rail, gazing wistfully out to sea. The MST gang call her Creepy Girl, and thus she will ever be to me. This film wants so badly for us to see her as an exotic, mysterious, luminous, ethereal beauty. But with her 60s helmet hair, buck teeth, and googly eyes, let's just say she's no Monica Bellucci. Her deranged story about swimming in the Mediterranean and meeting a friendly fish who she never saw again should have made Dong Pringle back away very slowly. But no, they are now romantically linked. It is teen movie law. The boat trip gives us our first musical number, courtesy of Little Richard, who's the only singer in this film who seems to know how to lip sync. He wrote the song for the film, so it's about a scuba party. It's bouncy, inane, and does the job of getting everybody gyrating wildly. Really wildly. A lot of spinal jerking and arm pumping. One of the go-go dancers appears to be in danger of possible cervical dislocation. There's doing the swim or doing the jerk or whatever, and then there's, I hope they had a chiropractor on set energy. Supporting this unbridled enthusiasm is our director of photography. Lots of butt shots, guy reaction shots, and I know it's the 60s, but this film has more quick zooms than an episode of The Banana Splits. Side note, I think Little Richard is the only person in this film with some color in their skin that wasn't UV-induced. 
It's kind of weird, actually, since visual media, especially crowd scenes, was pretty integrated by then. This has to be one of the whitest films I know of. Even the blondes are blonder than necessary. There are some attempts to get with the times using some hep lingo, but it comes off as forced. When a chirpy little blonde girl says something like, It really swings! Or... Are you going to be a drag? It just feels like white suburban kids trying to be all hep and downtown. But they're so vanilla, it's like South Dakota church youth group playing goths. Speaking of forced, the musical score in this really wants the viewer to feel a certain way at any given time. I mean, that's what a musical score does, but they really beat you over the head with this because the visuals don't carry it at all, so they kind of have to. Creepy girl's monologues are underscored with dreamy strings that can't overcome her melodramatic meanderings. When budget Buster Keaton is on screen, we get slide trombones, tubas, xylophones, because funny! Then again, there are those spontaneous, air quotes, dance numbers. I mean, they're about as spontaneous as a rocket launch. You've probably seen these before, especially in older films like this one with pop singers bobbing away, strumming unplugged guitars, and singing to a pre-recorded sound. As mentioned earlier, I think Little Richard does fine, but the other performers, Carol Connors and the Cascades, they kind of phone it in. There are moments when Connors just gives up and lets the music go on without her, and then chimes back in as she sees fit. I can see the first AD whispering to the director, she isn't even trying half the time, we need another take. Nah, we'll just cut to gyrating teens. Remember, we're sponsored by two swimwear companies, Cranmore bikini girls, and guys in trunks with matching windbreakers in there. When we're not dancing or listening to musical numbers or watching budget Buster Keaton's pratfalls, we're scuba diving. There's a lot of diving in this. Good old simple rubber masks and aqua lungs. And a lot of dog paddling for some reason. I don't think any of these actors or stunt people ever watched a Jacques Cousteau special. A quick note about the opening and closing credit sequences. I hadn't watched this in a while, and when I rolled it, the first thing I thought was, this is the most 60s credit animation ever. It was kind of a fad for a number of years. You put a whimsical, comical animation sequence having very little to do with the story, but sort of vaguely thematically connected at the beginning and or ending of your picture. In this case, the tone matches the tone of the film, but like for the Pink Panther films, it's kind of goofy, makes a certain amount of sense, since those are comedy too, but still. And then there's something like 1969's Moon Zero Two, filmed 18 months after 2001 A Space Odyssey. However uneven in tone, this science fiction action film, Moon Zero Two, is not a comedy, but the opening credits are a lot like Catalina Capers, with comic antics of chubby spacemen and aliens instead of a scuba diver. The film company that did Catalina Capers credits, Murakami Wolf, did a lot of film credit sequences and a few years later produced the first feature-length animated film for television, the 1971 musical fantasy The Point. The song Me and My Arrow comes from this film. It's kind of a trip. 
This is definitely one of those films that is almost unwatchably boring without the riffing. And it would be pretty easy to do a riff party with some friends and ad-lib your way through it. Underwater night fight, butts and bubbles, not much else. Yay, another female temper tantrum. Hmm, random underwater band gag. What the heck is going on? I'll let Jeff do the deep coverage of the MST version. Even though this is not my favorite MST episode, it's still fun. Those old episodes are what the show was all about and what made it successful. We felt like we were sitting around with some friends heckling an old movie and laughing our butts off. Vintage MST like this is very well written. It lets the film breathe. Joel and later Mike and the bots don't need to chatter nonstop. It's okay to let the film stand or fall on its own pretty frequently. And this is why I'm not a fan of the recent reboot of MST. I may lose some of you here, but even though I like the actors in the newer show, the riff writing is way too frenetic for me. It's non-stop slick chatter, and the host segments are way too overproduced in my opinion. This episode, though, is classic MST that feels like watching a bad film with some of your goofy friends in your parents' basement, and I like it that way. Now that you've heard Nancy tell you all about the original film, it's my job to talk about the Rift version. Catalina Caper was the fourth episode of the second season of Mystery Science Theater 3000, and it was about the time that MST was really coming together. The cast for this episode is Joel Hodgson as Joel Robinson, a janitor stranded on the satellite of love and forced to watch bad movies with his bots, Crow T. Robot, voiced by Trace Bellew, and Tom Servo, voiced by Kevin Murphy. Down in Deep 13, we have the Mads, Dr. Clayton Forrester, who's played, again, by Trace Bellew, and his sidekick, TV's Frank, who's played by Frank Conniff. This is only Frank's fourth episode after he took over for J. Elvis Weinstein, who left the show after the first season. And only four episodes in, the chemistry between Frank and Dr. Forrester was, well, amazing. The two worked so well together, and that could be the reason why they still work together 33 years later. And as Nancy said, the concept of the film, Catalina Caper, was outdated even when it was made. And it's very incompetently done. So this 1967 film is perfect for riffing. There's so much to make fun of. And it was sort of a change for Mystery Science Theater. In the past, they had done bad science fiction or horror movies, but this is the first time they used a movie that was lighthearted and attempting to be funny in its own right, but failing. I mean, as Eddie Murphy once said, I went to a white disco recently, and I watched white people dance, and white people can't dance. And y'all be trying. And boy, does this film prove it. We open the show with the bots saying their prayers. And they pray for other TV and film robots such as Data, R2-D2, Robocop, and such. It's a mildly amusing bit, but it's fun to see the bots in their PJs. After the commercial break, Joel forces them to pray for the Mads. Joel explains that they have to because the Mads control his air supply. (laughs) This leads to the invention exchange. I love the Mads' invention. They're tank tops. I mean literal tank tops. 
large army tank turrets that they have strapped over their shoulders that are worn around their waist. For fans of the Venture Brothers, there's something similar, but that was made two decades later. Joel's invention is a bazooka that works as a tickling device. Now, like I said, the film they're forced to watch is Catalina Caper. And Nancy has told you all about this silly musical mystery comedy film starring Tommy Kirk. And when I say comedy, I use air quotes. It's because the only thing that's funny about the film are the jokes made by Joel and the bots. As soon as the film begins, during the animated opening credits of the film, Crow uses the long-running gag... By this time, my... Hey, come on. Just, huh? No, just okay. And as you can hear, he was cut off by Joel, indicating they used the joke way too much. Later in the film, this happens again during a scuba diving scene, in which Crow apologizes. When Tom Servo sees the name Robert Donner, he says, Oh, Robert Donner. I went to his party. (laughs) Those are the types of jokes I love. It's one of those you either get it or you don't, and they move on. No explanation needed. We cut to the teens dancing around the campfire, and Crow has a great line when they show a skinny girl in a bikini. This is the kind of padding I like to see in a film. Throw another beach boy on the fire. There are some jokes that, well, are a bit outdated, and many people might not get these days. Like when Joel says, Hey, it's Steve Higgins. Oh, you mean the star of the Higgins Boys and Gruber is seen on the Comedy Channel? Yeah. Wow. You see, MST3K was on the Comedy Channel, which was Comedy Central before it merged with Ha, another comedy station. And Higgins Boy and Gruber was one of their early shows. And incidentally, it was created and co-written by Joel Hodgson. So you see it all ties together. There's a scene on a boat where Tommy Kirk walks up to Creepy Girl. He says, it's quiet out here, and I love Joel's reply. It was quiet. And that brings me to a point about this film. I don't understand why every young man in the film is so ready to leave their current girlfriend for this creepy girl. Soon after, Tommy Kirk is talking to his friends and they mention the air and water. Crow quips, Air, water, you're pretty observant there, pal. A great way to emphasize the dumb dialogue. Now, one of Nancy's comments about the film, it's, for lack of a better term, whiteness, is emphasized when we see a newspaper headline about the stolen scrolls. Tom Servo makes the joke, Hey, look at this. White people voted the best people in the world. Young white male still on top. NEA denies Bill Keen Grant. And this is a great lead-in to the Little Richard song. This is such a weird scene that it almost didn't need any riffing. Well, there's uh, really nothing we can say about that, is there? Uh, It's not during family hour. And it's a sad reminder to films of the past where black people could only be in a movie if they were there to sing or maybe be a servant. And like Nancy said, this concept was already done by 1967, but obviously the writers didn't get the memo. And the song, well, it's not one of Little Richard's best, but it works for the kids dancing. And by dancing, I mean if you want to see girls' butts and tight slacks shaking and jiggling, well, I guess that could be considered dancing. Little Richard, the only genuine talent in this film. 
the second host segment was a good Joel riff about what life was like in the 60s. Joel, could you tell us about this thing called the 60s? Well, it was a lot simpler time back then, you know, like I'll give you an example. Like it wasn't uncommon at all for your mom to come and serve you a great big charbroiled steak while she smoked and uh, drank a tab and made a, your dad another Manhattan. And it even gets funnier when Joel gets a little dark as he wanders into his childhood. Parents were actually told to spank their kids while my mom actually made me go and get the belt. You know, in front of Joel. company, and that was really Joel. frustrating Joel. because Joel. once they made me Joel. take a bath Joel. in the front yard. The third host segment, Tom Servo sings the now classic creepy girl song. I <laughs> smell a song coming on. <laughs> oh, creepy girl. Lyle Wagner's a total jerk. Second only to Tommy Kirk. Could you find it in your heart to love a bot like me? That fish Kevin Murphy is such a wonderful singing voice that both MST3K and Riff Tracks take full advantage of it whenever they can. Tom Servo sings to an image of Ula Stromsted as Joel and Crow dance in the dark behind him. Now, you know, for me to tell you all the great jokes, it's a little like Michael Scott from The Office trying to recreate great comedy bits. It'll just fall flat. The show is available everywhere, and I assume if you're listening to this show, you've watched it before. As far as the film goes, I think the gang summed it up with the line... Why did the Titanic have to sink and this didn't? I don't know. You know what the difference is between the Titanic and this? What? Titanic had talent. <laughs> the band in the film is the Cascades, who were a real band that were together from 1960 to 1975 and have reformed a few times since. I thought that Joel and the Bots maybe were a little cruel with their jokes aimed at the, the group. Bad music. These guys are horrible. I'm going to quit this band and start a career in music. The song they sing in the film is There's a New World Opening for Me, and it was written by Ray Davies of the Kinks. The other real musician in the film was Carol Connor. She had been a lead singer of the Teddy Bears and sang To Know Him is to Love Him. She's the one who sings The Book of Love. It's just one big, sunny, fun-filled baton death march. No Real Fun is made at her expense, which I liked, and uh, I'm sure for Carol it was a quick paycheck. Now, like I pointed out, this film is available on YouTube, and I thought I'd share a few comments left by viewers. I want to hug Tom Servo so badly every time he gets emotional. Honestly, I do, I do. I don't care if he gets this emotional all the freaking time. I want to embrace him here. I assume he or she is referring to the Creepy Girl song. Just because T.P.'s Frank has the same first name as the antagonist in David Lynch's masterpiece Blue Velvet doesn't mean he has to reference him at 2 minutes 44 seconds. This was a twisted move. But to be fair, they're supposed to be evil mad scientists. Really, has this person not seen the show before? What don't they reference? A very strange comment. 
This seems a great movie to watch with drunk friends. It's one of the best episodes of the show, in my opinion. I have to say that I've never watched MST drunk before, but I think if I was going to watch the original film without the riffing, I might have had to have a couple of cold drinks, or six, or twelve. Now a little trivia I got from the MST3K fandom site. This episode was originally released on DVD, and it included the complete uncut film as a bonus. But then the rights to the movie expired, and not only couldn't Comedy Central show the MST version anymore, but the DVD had to be taken out of print. It has since become a collector's item. This is the first time something like this happened, but it has happened to a few other films, including all the Godzilla films, which are very hard to get these days. They must have gotten the rights back to Catalina Caper because it was re-released on DVD and it's been on Pluto a few times. The film was edited for MST3K, and I guess that would have to be right. I mean, the original running time was 84 minutes long, and the MST episode clocks in at 97 minutes, and that includes the opening titles and the ending song and all the host segments. I've never seen the uncut version. I wonder if it makes the movie any better. Now on Amazon, for the sale of the DVD of the MST3K version, I found a few comments that were amusing. Someone named Bonnie gave it 4 out of 5 stars and she wrote, Don't be fooled by the 4 stars. That's because I'm in the movie. What a goofy movie. Kind of like those Gidgets in those days or beach party flicks, but not quite as good a plot nor acting. But I love watching myself run around as one of the girls following the man on the beach. Oh well, I got paid and I have to be loyal, so I love it. But not everyone agrees. One man gave it only one star and he wrote, I was extremely disappointed in the picture I ordered and received. I had no idea it was going to have all the extra crap added to it. It was annoying and made it impossible to know what the picture was about. I worked on the picture when it was being made. While it was a long way from being a really good picture, it wasn't a terrible one. I wanted it in its original form, not some cut-up, trashed version. The mystery theater folks should make it clear that they trash movies so people understand it before they purchase them. Let's dig little Richard really turn it on. A little bit before I go, Catalina Caper was a nice change for MST uh, 3K. It wasn't a bad print of a horror or sci-fi film with bad sound. It was a bright and colorful comedy with clear sound and music. Now, it was a bad film, but the thing is, you can watch the film and completely understand what the makers of this film were going for. They were like, hey, we need a star, but we don't want to pay a lot of money. We need musical acts, but again, we have to be frugal, so maybe spend our money on one big name. And then, as Nancy pointed out, they went through a checklist of things they thought were important to a beach film. Of course, these items were at the expense of a a decent story. And no one bothered to tell them that beach movies weren't a thing anymore. Hey, I hope you enjoyed the new format with me and Nancy, and hopefully we'll do that again next month, but we'll reverse roles and see how that works out. But next Monday, the first Monday of the month, I'm going back to film history to talk about the Luminaire Brothers from France and their contribution to the world of the moving picture. 
Hey, listen up. I have a Facebook page. I would love for you to comment on it. It's just called Celluloid Days. So, hey, join us. And I also have a Twitter account. It's at Celluloid underscore Days. I'm always looking for film suggestions. The more strange and unusual, the better. The email address for the show is daysofcelluloid at gmail.com. Days of Celluloid all mean one word. You can even email me if you just want to say hi. And if you could leave a review to wherever you download this podcast, hopefully a, a good one, I'd be forever grateful. Thanks to Nancy and to everybody who listens to the show and shares it with their friends. That's wonderful. We'll be back next Monday with the Luminaire Brothers. Bye. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas Multipass. You're a stupid mind. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing.